from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Alan D'Souza of the Department of Art Practice, discussing his book, How Art Can Be Thought, A Handbook for Change. He is joined by Ann Walsh of Art Practice. Good noon. I figured out I could say that today. Um, I'm going to introduce Alan, and then Alan's going to read a little bit, and then we'll talk with each other and, and with you today. Um, so I'm Ann Walsh. I'm an associate professor in art practice. Um, I'm realizing this is the first time that you and I have ever sat across from a table and had a public conversation. We've had published written conversations. We've had a number of other ways of, of interacting, but never quite like this before. Right, and, and we've been colleagues for a really long time. I, I'm just about to get to that, yeah. Um, I, no, no, please. I feel so honored um, as an academic colleague, as a fellow artist, um, to be introducing Alan today. We met 25 years ago um, in Los Angeles as fellow lecturers in the studio art department at UC Irvine. And um, we have worked together as editors of the Los Angeles-based um, Extra Contemporary Art Quarterly, and we have been in dialogue about our work, our families, um, and our teaching worlds ever since. So a long time. Um, we have a very short time to talk today, so I'm going to try to be brief. I want to just share a little bit about Alan. Um, he's just old enough to remember the celebrations of the so-called Kenya colonies independence from Britain in 1962. Um, three, three, um, a moment that figures um, both quite literally and then I think um, frequently um, uh, metaphorically in his work. Um, he moved to London from Nairobi at age seven um, and then was educated in the UK at Goldsmiths College and the Bath Academy of Art, and then later in the United States in the Whitney Independent Study Program and, and in the Master's Program in Photography at UCLA. Um, he's been here at Berkeley since 2012, is that right? Um, and the chair of our department for the last four years. Um, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> As an artist, as a visual artist, which really includes um, his work in photography, uh, photo text, um, performance, sound, and video, um, his work often engages issues of migration, diaspora, and colonial histories. He can be quite comic and beautiful in his reexaminations of historically <laughs> fraught meanings of geography, culture, and personal and community identity. Um, the most recent exhibition that Alan had uh, here in the Bay Area, which was portions of which were here in this room and then later at um, USF 
is called, and hopefully a book to be. I'm, uh, at, at least essays. Okay. Yes. Is called Through the Black Country or The Sources of the Thames Around the Great Shires of Lower England and Down the Severn River to the Atlantic Ocean, which reenacts and upends iconic colonial narratives of discovery in Africa. Um, some of you may have seen a version of that in here. His work has been featured at museums and galleries worldwide including the Phillips Collection in D.C., Yerba Buena in San Francisco, the ICP in New York, the Pompidou Center in Paris, the Museum for African Art in New York, Moderna Musée in Stockholm, and Talwar Gallery, which represents him in New York and New Delhi. So um, now this, Alan's book, which appeared from Duke University Press in October, 2018, um, is, is, is quite, quite um, unhyperbolically the book that I've been waiting for as a teacher. Um, it is essentially, um, pr it is primarily a glossary of so-called contested terms, um, really interrogating the language which is um, so often so casually used um, particularly for those of us who teach art in the situation of the art critique. Um, and um, that, that, that expansive glossary um, is framed by an introduction for essays um, concerning art pedagogy and then a wonderful um, uh, final chapter um, concerning using using the painter Rothko and the um, and and the language typically used to describe Rothko's work and to honor it um, as a case in point of everything else that the book has interrogated. So um, that's what this is, um, and um, I'm going to ask Alan now. To, um, to read some excerpts from it, and then we'll talk about why those excerpts and what's happening in them, and then we'll open it up. Okay, well, thank you so much, Anne. I mean, um, uh, so the pressure not only to be fun from Tim, but also to be uh, beautiful and, funny. and comic. And both. Funny. Yeah, you have to do okay. both things. Um, so I'm actually gonna talk about colonization. <laughs> so funny, so beautiful. Um, but, uh, I, I, and I'm going to read a section from the introduction, um, just the last uh, part of the introduction, uh, as a kind of overview um, and as a kind of conceptual um, and, I guess, linguist, linguistic ground uh, for, for why this book. Um, and mentioned that, you know, I'm from Kenya um, and just sort of old enough to um, be born with when Kenya was still a colony. Um, and in some ways that, that really um, does inform uh, so much of my work, both artwork um, and, and writing. Um, and writing I consider as artwork, so I do consider the book as an art project. Um, but it's to extend um, colonization and colonialism from uh, simply uh, being, 
being thought of as rooted in a particular time period. Um, and to consider that perhaps we live in a, co a post-colony, um, uh, a, a global post-colony, um, uh, and again, to use the term post, not in terms of time, um, but um, that the colonies have become um, independent in name, uh, but have become financially even more dependent um, to sort of global, uh, other global forces. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm trying to situate the language of art, and, and, if, and even though the book is primarily directed at MFA students, um, it is really for anyone who looks at art and to be able to translate um, how we look at art, translate it into, into language so that we can actually communicate the experience we have of engaging with art. Um, and that language is, um, I guess, shockingly restricted. Um, you know, how can we translate our bodily feelings and responses um, in, into words and then be able to share that with other people? Um, and that sort of lack of language um, is, is what I've also embedding within um, a, a sort of broader notion of colonialism. Okay, so let me, let me read. Uh, so two aspects of colonization that I will continue, continually reference are its control over history and its exertions upon the body. Um, and I'm looking at history in terms of time and memory and the body, particularly in terms of affect and mobility. Colonization aspires to determine history, controlling how time and the past are narrated in order to produce future narratives. It does so in part by creating a rupture from the past as well as within the present, a cut from any sense of historical continuity. Its capacity to wield these cuts is not only as an outside force, but one that is fully embodied, psychically and physically acting upon and from within the body, forming how each one of us is organized, how and what we know, how we feel, think, and act in and with the world. That is, intimately producing any sense of who we are in relation to our history and to the bodies and histories of others. Intrinsic to who we are are practices of both remembering and forgetting. Writing about the closed plantation system of the Americas, Edouard Glissant outlines how two cultures develop that are integral to modernism. Uh, and here I'm speaking specifically of European modernism. One is a culture of actively forgetting, the other is one of remembering actively. This remembering is undertaken at great risk against the strictures, impediments, and punishments imposed on remembering one's language, languages, one's histories, one's humanity, and the violence that has been per perpetrated against those. Forgetting is also not a simple or lightly undertaken erasure, since it too is activist in its demands for returns to imagined pasts. Not only brutal in its eradications, forgetting can entertain or rather infotain, eventually producing, for example, the plantation as heritage tourist destination through the industry jargon of authentic recreations, of willing participation, of happy cared for slaves singing in the fields. 
Glissant reminds us that landscape, a supposedly neutral genre of nature observation, is highly implicated in this practice of forgetting, emphasizing the conventional splendor of the Caribbean landscape over the lives and death grounds of slaves, an eviscerated landscaping, landscaping that is integral to how contemporary tourists imagine themselves in that landscape and how the imagining is enacted for them. In this resort equivalent of terra nullius, empty land, the only natives are there to provide lux calm et volupte to uh, quote a title of Henri Matisse's uh, painting. The will to forget and the will to remember. How and what does one remember if a predominant modernism produces a culture of forgetting? Um, and uh, Anne mentioned my last chapter uh, on Rothko uh, really um, examines closely what it is to look at an abstract painting from the period of sort of high modernism. Um, and what is it they remember? And the rhetoric around abstraction, what does that cause us to also forget? How does art function as island of forgetting within seas of turmoil as comfortable armchair, quote unquote, to keep Henri Matisse in mind? Uh, in the rooms of the living and the caverns of the dying, um, and let me just give you the full quote from Matisse. Um, and here I'm quoting from him. What I dream of is an art of balance, of purity and serenity, devoid of troubling or depressing subject matter. An art that could be for every mental worker, for the businessman as well as the man of letters. Uh, for example, a soothing, calming influence on the mind. Something like a good, like a good armchair, which provides relaxation from physical fatigue. Uh, and that's uh, Matisse from Notes of a Painter. So we have this sort of template of art as a place of escape. Um, and that's often been the rhetoric of uh, particularly around abstraction. Um, and so escape can also be about forgetting. While Matisse himself was almost obsessively driven and hardly the epitome of an armchair painter, I dredge him up since his work has come to stand for not quite an escape, but a point of view and an, experiences, an experience that rises above the troubles of the world, a rising that marks a central aspiration for Western modernism. The critic Peter Sheldahl, who writes for The New Yorker, epitomizes this aspiration at exactly the moment of crisis as a salve to the mowing down of revelers along the Nice waterfront in July 2016. Uh, and, I and I quote from Sheldahl. To share in the delicate truth that rigorous art can be at one with routinely melting pleasures, you look at, show, or send a picture by, by Matisse. People have been doing that often these awful recent days, unquote. Similarly, in a review of, of a Matisse exhibition in 1992, Hilton Kramer writes, I quote, it has the effect of making one feel a lot better about the century in which we live. A terrible century in so many ways, yet one in which we can nonetheless feel an immense sense of pride if beside its unremitting record of suffering, bloodshed and tragedy, it can also boast of an achievement as sublime as Matisse's, unquote. Curiously, this rebalancing of the scales of beauty leaves Kramer mourning Matisse, 
though his mourning is symptomatic of a more generalized melancholia for a world that never was. He concludes, and I quote, when we exit this exhibition and return to the world, um, sorry, lost my place. When we exit this exhibition and return to the sordid cultural landscape of this last decade of the century, it is hard to believe that we shall ever again witness anything like it, now or in the foreseeable future, unquote. In these examples of forgetting, sorry, in these examples, forgetting is purposeful and elevating, with beauty as the engine whisking us away from the tragedies of the world. The will to forget and escape are understandable, but we might also measure privilege by the degree to which we can forget, ignore, or be whisked away from the tragedies of others, including the privilege of being able to think of them as other. Artists such as Glenn Ligon, Carrie Mae Weems, Betty Saar, and Kara Walker, to name only the few of the more well-known, might be considered as doing the work of remembering uh, in this instance of slavery and the plantation system. A different tactic of remembering is pursued by the artist Simone Lee. As well as creating counter-representations, Lee works directly with and upon the body of the viewer, transforming galleries and museums into healing spaces for the tra traumatic memories that have been generationally inscribed into, onto black and brown bodies and that are, that are re-experienced in the onslaught of ongoing racism and sexism. Lee turns the gallery into a site of self and communal actualization to activate viewers to new forms of representation. And I think that's important that it's not only the artist who provides new forms of representation, but that viewers of themselves are activated to um, enact forms of representation. A more demanding, destabilizing way to think of these artists is that they play resounding roles in repurposing postmodernist forms and languages against the modernist project of forgetting. Rather than framing such artists as addenda to a central narrative, how might we rethink that central narrative of modernism when we replace what has been purposefully removed and forgotten? And rather than policing the political effectiveness of black artists in and accepted by white institutions, we might, to use the vernacular of the plantation, consider that the work of remembering and replacement needs to be done as much in the big house as in the slaves' quarters, at least until the institutional architectures and locations of memory work have been rebuilt. The other main considerations I will consider through colonization will be on control over mobility and access, of how emotions, languages, and ideas circulate, of which bodies have mobility and institutional access, including to ideas and through which artistic practices and vocabularies these are extended and simultaneously withheld. Throughout the book, I will return to these questions of memory and forgetting, of language, mobility, and access, and what implications they have for looking at and understanding, um, understanding art, for pedagogy, and for social relations and disconnections developed around art. In doing this, I'm not prescribing what a decolonizing culture and its forms can or will be, since any such prescriptions 
should be, subs should be suspect as returns to an applications of colonizing authority. My aim then is not to prescribe what art can be, but to work, but to work towards language to describe what it does and does not do, how it does that and what it can do. Language being the prime means, prime means to articulate what those, what those possibilities might be. Decolonizing culture and the modes of art political inquiry that I'm proposing cannot exist in isolation or with any claim to autonomy. They are entwined with and can only be experienced, understood, and enacted as decolonizing through arts institutions, practices, discourses, and participants. Like any other object or event, art political work becomes politicized through the culture, agents, institutions, and systems that reproduce and produce it, through which it operates and which it in turn produces. By turning to the political, and I concede that what the political means and how it functions are always contested and temporal, and pulling from different sources, my interest is in placing a spectrum of ideas and practices in service of the idealism that many art students have and continue to have in more subdued form as artists. And we'll, we can debate um, that subdued form. It's an idealism that desires more from art than being a commodity, that, f that grounds art politically and socially while repurposing aesthetic and formal invention that pursues art as complex intersections between individual and collective interests. It is an idealism that continues to inspire me, yet it is an idealism that currently lacks an adequate language to articulate, investigate, and interrogate its interests, desires, demands, methods, and outcomes. Okay, so that, that's my starting points. Um, I kind of want you to read more, but um. Um, I, I mean, I can read more, uh, I guess, in, in response to particular questions or discussions. Sure. Um, thank you for reading that. Um, I'm really struck by the end, the last thing that you say there, um, that the project is fundamentally in the service of the idealism of mm. the student artists that you work with. Um, and yeah. I'd love you to say a little bit more about that idealism mm. and... Yeah, I mean, art school and, uh, you know, an art department within a university um, are, are, are sort of difficult places to teach. Uh, um, um, and, and I think those are productive difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think students, when they enter into art programs, um, are idealistic, both in terms of wanting to change the world, mm -hmm. um, and, and students will say that, and, and artists will say that. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I, you know, I, I say it's, artists do that in more subdued forms, because I think artists are embarrassed to say that that they want to change the world. Um, and it's interesting that, that that particular phrase of wanting to change the world has been token, taken over by the business arts. And so that's now the slogan of, I think, SF State. 
uh, of the MBA program. Um, and you, we see um, uh, billboards around, this, uh, around San Francisco which say that, you know, change the world from here. And it's, it's advertising the MBA program. Um, but so there is an idealism both to change the world but also to, um, I guess, maximize their potential, um, you know, as individuals. Um, and then to come into an art program where that might be shut down, I think. And students sometimes feel that they're being indoctrinated into certain ways of seeing. Um, and if they come from any point of uh, difference, and, and you know, uh, um, we can debate the, the sort of phrasing of that language as well around difference. Um, of how they see themselves in relation to both the individual professors but also to the department um, and how that difference is, is supported and brought, brought into being, um, that idealism I think can be squashed mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in lots of ways that might be invisible mm -hmm. and you know, might, nev might never be stated overtly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, I think, you know, uh, I mean, one of the pleasures for me of being in the department is having colleagues like you as well, who are so attuned to that um, and really try and empower students. Um, and so the difficulty for us as faculty is how do we do that um, and not, we're not just teaching what we think we know, um, but we're trying to bring out what students themselves know and, and what they can know, I think, in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so it is, it is trying to support students for what they themselves can be more than what we tell them. I see a couple people nodding in the room in response to your saying what you just said about um, our students sensing that there is some, um, some constriction yeah, and... Because um, yeah. I think the conventional way of teaching art is that we teach students to be the artists that we are. Right. You know, what we know, to, we teach them how to make the kind of work that we know how to make. Which, know, is, we, which, is, which is also a kind of generational inheritance that, yeah. we, that we've, you know, that we're yeah. passing on from our teachers, 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 teachers. Yeah, yeah we've been taught that certain ways are the right ways to do things. Mm -hmm. Certain knowledge is the right knowledge, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I find with my teaching, and you know, this is difficult for me as a teacher, also knowing that actually what I have to do is sort of is 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 actually balancing. To what extent do I let go of all the things that I think I know, and allow for the knowledge of the students to come into play? Right, and that you think they ought to know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, you know, we, we want to give them tools and, and knowledge, but we also want to give them the tools of criticality so they can weigh what it is that we think we're telling them. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, I think that, that's, that's the exciting difficulty, I think, of an art program. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a question about a term that I um, notice is, is not present in the lexicon, in the glossary, which is, is perhaps it's so embedded everywhere that it doesn't need 
need to be here, but it's, it's the very term global. Mm. Um, um, oh, okay. Which I think of as a pretty, <laughs> uh, or if it isn't a contested term, it needs to be more so. Mm. Um, um, oh, I should mention, uh, and Anne sort of alluded to it, that uh, about two thirds of the book consists of a, um, a glossary of, of, of terms that are most commonly used to dis, um, in conversations about art. Um, so global, um, uh, oh, okay, this is ironic that Anne's asking me the question because she's currently teaching a, uh, a course on global perspectives of contemporary art. <laughs> well, in 20, in 30 minutes I am. I haven't. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, well, I mean, we, we want to locate, we want to help locate our students within a sense of the local. Um, like, what does it mean to, to be in Berkeley? Um, but how is that impacted by global forces and, and how are those global forces both um, enabling uh, in a sense of internationalism? Like, how do, situ how do students situate themselves in the world in order to be able to function in multiple locations? Um, and also, I, I guess, activate their own histories from being from multiple locations. Um, but also, how do they grapple with the forces of um, globalization, which, which might be um, to produce a kind of something that's much more homogenous, um, that might be very restrictive? Mm -hmm. but, you know, so um, I, th I think it's to, to also empower students to work with um, global possibilities, but also globalizations. Um, forces of constraint and limitations. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and one example of that is uh, globalization encourages the, the mobility of, of goods and material, but limits the mobility of, of people. People. Mm. Um, uh, but you must have your own thoughts about that. Well, I, I realized just as I, as I asked it that, that my own... Um, my own desire to, um, to to trouble the term global, um, which I would admit is influenced by something that Shuddha said when he was visiting, Shuddha Sengupta was visiting as part of the Rocks Media um, Collective in the fall, um, t talking about how the term global is already itself a kind of... Um, expression of, of, of corporate imperialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, they, um, you know, Gayatri Spivak uses the term planetarity. Planetarity, planetarity yeah. yeah. Yeah, which also, I think, brings into, uh, I mean, foregrounds a sense of the sort of environmentalism, too. Yeah. That the planet itself is a kind of limited resource. Right, right. Um, and I think that, you know, her... Her phrasing and her expansion on that phrasing, I think, is really useful mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. But as I was asking you that, I have to admit that I, I was also tripping on my own anxiety about being big housey. Um, you know that 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 term global that that if I'm going to get anxious about it with students, that I'm also possibly again shutting down some idealism that has that that 
I, that I can't uh -huh. that I can't recognize the value of. Right. Um, yeah. No. I think uh, you know we have to obviously talk about global in terms of internationalism and um, uh, conviviality. Like you mm -hmm. know what can that mean to also feel a sense of belonging in different parts of the world? And what is it that makes us feel that we don't belong? Um, you know, even in our own homes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess one of the other things with, with students um, and, and everyone, the, this um, predominant sense of coming from multiple locations or having multiple histories is that it's a form of limitation that one doesn't belong anywhere. Mm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's always the descriptions of um, feeling out of place, uh, and not belonging. And, and I'm really interested in, well, if we have histories from multiple locations, how do we use those to generate multiple possibilities? So it, it, it mm -hmm. can actually be about, um, mm -hmm. you know, what is the value of multiple histories, of multiple uh, locations of belonging? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what kinds of internationalism do we embody, actually? And how, mm -hmm. how do we then enact those in, into the world? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so more as possibilities, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. It's time to open it up yeah. to the room. We were, so I'm happy to know if there are anyone, if there are any questions or responses to anything. And we've sort of barely touched on art. I know, we've barely, <laughs> barely, barely, barely broken the surface. Um, so uh, when you were talking about the, um, for example, the nations that have been colonized and there's this history that has been removed and um, how they're maybe trying to recreate a new version. So uh, I'm from a country that hasn't been colonized and I noticed that there's this tendency to for no nostalgia, basically, because uh, the current situation is not maybe um, uh, desired. And so people tend to go back in history mm -hmm. and feel like the previous glory is like what we wanted. And there's always this tendency for nostalgia and like the feeling of, um, it's like this nostalgia is not helping for the pr production of new things, basically. It's like reproduction of the old things. It's always happening, even in art. So there's nothing new necessarily happening, and it's always the reproduction of old things. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if in the nation that has been colonized, if you see this tendency of nostalgia mm -hmm. uh, is happening, or if there's any room for creativity, is it still there because there has been this gap you know, uh, where there's a, basically a room for, um, you know, because there has some um, basically culture removed, mm -hmm. so there's room for right. more creativity. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess first point, I'm sort of curious, like, uh, which countries have not been colonized? Yeah. Um, but I, but, I, but I, I'm also careful that we, um, you know, I did mention to, um, that we want to, we need to guard against the sort of fantasies of past moments, um, like recreating um, um, a kind of utopia which is dystopian for 
majority of the population probably, uh, based on the fantasy of a past, of a, of a so, so guarding against um, certain kinds of nationalism. Um, and, uh, and also to examine, well, who does, whose interests does nationalism serve? Um, you know, so even coming from a colony of seeing a kind of independence movement, um, which is, you know, often built around nationalism and, and the creation of a new nation, but then to also guard against that being um, being fossilized and solidified um, to then emulate um, the the former colonizers as well. So you know to guard against this. Um, uh, nostalgia for something that never was, you know, and who's who's in and serves an interest of minor of a minority. I guess. Mm. That's, that's a question. It's recording. It's for posterity. <laughs> Thank you for your book and thank you for your talk. Uh, I'm just curious if you could <clears throat> describe to me, um, I'm always have this big question between like theory and practice, especially with people who write. And I was wondering if you could tell me what this MFA program is doing and particularly in regards to like some of the theories that you have about how art can be thought. So like what <laughs> this grad school, what this program has, or like what you hope for it even idealistically. Uh, this is coming from a current MFA student. Um, uh, I, th I think um, I'm going to speak for all the faculty and the department. I, th I think we're idealistic for the program. Um, and we, which does mean that we have to make it alongside the students who are currently in it. Um, uh, oh, okay, I'm going to advertise the program. Um, we, we pay full tuition. That, that's a big deal. And I just got an email from our department manager saying, we have funding. We're going to give stipends to every one of our grads every semester. So that's the first you're hearing of that. Um, so, um, you know, education should be free um, uh, across the board. Um, and until we have that, um, like, I think that's the biggest challenge we're working against. And, and sort of we need to work towards that. Education is a right. It's not a luxury. It's not a privilege. Um, uh, and I think that, that's our sort of ground zero of idealism for the program. And so we want to, um, uh, I, I guess in terms of art, we don't have a house style. We're not trying to make you into certain kinds of artists. Um, we take a, a broad range of students, um, some who don't come from art backgrounds. Uh, they come from other disciplines. Uh, because we're interested in, in the possibilities of what forms art can take in the future, and which we don't yet know. And, and what it's going to be has to come from the students. Because we as faculty don't know that yet. You know, and I, I think that's our idealism. And that's what we try to put into practice.
and thank you so much for the conversation. It's really exciting to hear. Um, I love that what I'm taking, I haven't seen the book yet, but I love this deconstruction of language and its relationship to art as thought. And I want to kind of go back out into uh, this kind of where theory meets practice. Uh, just for a tiny bit of context, I'm an installation sculptor turned conceptual artist turned social practice business entrepreneur. <laughs> and what I'm really struck by is this idea of globalism and how business has really kind of taken it under itself. And it's also now grabbing onto idealism. Mm -hmm. mm. And what's exciting to me about that in a way is that the arts, which exist mostly outside of language, how can we use that as a tool to really disrupt at scale and use social practice art to shift business systems? Because that train goes both ways. And so this is to me what's really exciting. And I love that you're taking that apart from the language point. And I think what I've been experiencing from within the conceptual art and social practice side is that it's also existing outside of language and we're, we're not quite able to describe it. And so I'm just very happy that you're kind of taking it apart from there. I'm hopeful mm -hmm. and idealistic. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, so, you know, we, we do, um, uh, we, we are preparing students to be artists. Um, and we don't know, as I said, we don't know what form that's going to be. Um, and so we, we're assuming that in the broadest scope possible, what an artist can be. Um, and obviously, a, a large section of that is, is, um, is working within our industries, uh, you know, whether it's commercial galleries, uh, you know, and so on. Um, and so within the realm of the market. And so we have to prepare students to be able to function um, competitively within the market. Um, otherwise, we do them a disservice. Uh, but we also have to, or well, we want to be able to prepare them for other ways of working, working which are not market dependent. And so I think we try, we try and do both things. Um, uh, so as a writer, I also have the ambition that everything can come into language. I do too. <laughs> um, and what we're grappling with um, and, and this comes, um, in, you know, in, in, our, in our critiques, which is um, uh, the core of an MFA program, uh, that gets played out in very practical ways. Like, you know, how do we um, create language to address any kind of work that we're being presented with? Um, and so the, the sort of coming to language is, is always a kind of future making, like we never, we never get there. We never have adequate language. So it's always an aspiration. Um, uh, we, you know, so which also means that um, we're, we're always trying. You know, it's never, it's never a past moment. Uh, but that's also linked to the idealism of wanting to make it, uh, of, of wanting to be able to um, describe art. There's two people back there. So just following on from what you just said and the previous uh, question as well. So you began by saying, um, how do we, uh, uh, the problem of translating art, that's to say visual art, 
uh, into language, and you are apparently concerned about uh, the restrictiveness of the language that we uh, use to translate uh, visual art so that we can, well, I believe you were saying so that we can communicate about it. I mean, here's the issue, here's the problem. Why translate at all? I mean, if I could just prompt you to say a little bit more clearly, a little bit more specifically than you just did. Uh, because one recourse could be, uh, don't try and translate it into language. A visual art is visual art, and it can be socially efficacious, uh, and reach out to whoever one wants to reach out to visually, and that's what the artist is trying to do. I mean, maybe the theory practice question from the right. MFA student could relate to that too, uh, and why theorize, right. uh, let's just right. practice. Okay. Uh, so, but you clearly uh, channel your idealism through this translation of visual art into uh -huh. language, and. Um, why, uh, what exactly are you aiming at, and why would you, I assume you wouldn't, entertain as a potential solution, stop trying? Mm -hmm. And so why? Okay, uh -huh. okay. Great um, yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I guess, uh, you know, art, art practices are themselves forms of language, um, in a sort of broader sense. Um, you know, so artists, and I try and break this down um, uh, of why I'm looking at these questions of language and, and also the languages that we inherit as artists. And, and by language, I mean the sort of um, the practices of making. Um, you know, how do we, images function? And if, there, if there's no inherited language, then we wouldn't know how to look at images. They become nonsensical to us. Um, so we can, we can never actually engage with something that's entirely new. Um, you know, if we don't have a precursor or entry points into it, um, we, we don't have ways then of making sense of it. Um, it, has an, it has an impact upon us, but we don't know what that impact is. So, th so that's really what I mean by translation. Um, so, you know, if, uh, and the example I give in, in the book is looking at Rothko paintings, and, and I, I specifically chose abstraction, abstract painting, which is often spoken of as being beyond language. Um, and so what does it mean to look at an abstract painting? Um, and I'm supposed to have feelings. I'm supposed to respond uh, uh, emotionally. Um, uh, but I might not know what those emotions are unless I can translate them for myself. Um, I don't know what I'm feeling unless those emotions come into words as well. And so it's that act of translation for myself before I can even begin if someone says, you know, tell me what you're feeling in front of a Rothko painting, you know, then what do I say, tell that person? Um, you know, how can we talk about art as culture? How can we um, develop culture if we don't bring language to scrutinize the inherited languages, as well as the ways that each artist is actually changing that inherited language? Mm -hmm. Roddy Reed from UC San Diego. Uh, thank you very much for this discussion. And I, I'd like to return to the question of forgetting. Um, and it brings to mind, at least for me, uh, form, one form of forgetting is to view art as transcendence. And I'm thinking of an earlier moment back in 1987 when Douglas Crimp and others brought out the, um, the special issue of October which was responding from an activist point of view 
to the question of art and art's purpose, and they were, much of their rage, and that was not all that was going on, but their rage had to do with how art critics in the art world, the established art world, was saying, oh, the HIV AIDS crisis with all this suffering and all these deaths, what a wonderful moment for creating beautiful, formally interesting, eternal art. So it's, in a sense, it's a form of forgetting not the past, but literally the present mm -hmm. in, in, the, in a kind of eternal perspective of art that that's transcends its moment and so on and so forth. That was a moment of national emergency. It was an emergency for different communities. We are now living in another emergency. It's political, but it's not simply that. And there is, um, speaking of global forces, there's, of course, you can think of right-wing populism and so on and so forth, but that's also pushing many, many residents and citizens, including artists, into new forms of activism. So I was think, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a question how in terms of student idealism and how that's a challenge and an opportunity for you as a teacher and as a program, does this new push toward activism and public art, um, how, how, how have you been dealing with it or what, what are your thoughts about it? Um, it's, it's an art that's, uh, that you, well anyhow, that's my question. Okay. Um, it has to be our last one because I have to go okay. to class. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, um, what we try and do as a department is make it clear that we're open to however students want to work, whatever they want to engage with. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, that's been critical on the Berkeley campus, um, the, the sort of, you know, the extreme right wing um, have targeted Berkeley. Um, and so it's something that's really impacts um, all our students, and, and I think um, art students, especially uh, who uh, you know come, um, who, who do feel particularly targeted. Um, you know, they often they've made been feel to made to feel that they don't don't belong anywhere. Sometimes an art department, um, for all kinds of reasons, might be the first place they feel they can belong, where they they're not made to feel weird. Um, their sexuality, um, race, gender, their histories, their physical abilities, they're not in question. Um, and obviously we as a department have to work to, to make that happen at, in terms of that acceptance too. Um, so we, we don't have a house style. Um, we try and respond to whatever students are interested in uh, and in terms of their activism and to, to we give them histories exactly like the ones you're, uh, you know, you, you've spoken about. These have been precedents. Um, these are what you can look at uh, in terms of research to help you engage with the present. Um, and can I just add that, I mean, our curriculum has directly evolved to reflect um, a much more expansive idea of what art's purposes are and, and forms are. So. Yeah, I, th I I personally have to go teach my class. But, but uh, you know, I, so, I, I, um, we hope you enjoyed this Berkeley book chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.